0: Before we begin, a trigger warning. This episode focuses on residential schools, including the abuses that occurred there. It may not be appropriate for all listeners.
1: We couldn't talk our language, and that was all we knew the of language. You couldn't even say, Tanse. We get strapped every day, we get strapped if you talk your language. Eh? We got nothing to play with in the yard, not even a ball. We never went to town or anything. We don't buy nothing. We never get out of the yard. This is a true story. It's just like jail where I went to school. We lost our parents back then.
2: Our parents lost their children, and so a lot of them became alcoholics. That impacted all of
0: us. I was abused at one time, that sexual abuse. When a child goes through that, just destroys your whole body,
1: your whole mind and your soul. The rules were no different than what the Indian Residential School, because Bouval was right next door to us. A lot of our survivors actually went to both places. And same thing with supervisors, they exchanged supervisors from Bhuval. Bouval got recognized, we didn't. The agenda was the same, take the culture out of the child. My grandkids, when they come over, always hug them and tell them I love them because 10 months of the year I never heard I loved you.
0: Those are the voices of Métis survivors of the Isle La Crosse Residential School. They join us as we mark National Truth and Reconciliation Day on this very first episode of One Nation, Many Stories. A podcast Brought to you by the Métis National Council. tante I'm Matt LeMay, the host of One Nation, Many Stories. I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario, whose family's roots are from the Red River, Drummond Island, and Penetanguishene. I'm also a documentary filmmaker and co-founder of Indigenous Geographic. In this podcast will bring you inspiring, heartfelt stories and interviews from the Métis people who make up the colorful tapestry of our proud nation. Today, we are going to be visiting one of my favorite places, the northern Saskatchewan Métis community of Isle Lacrosse. There, we'll be talking with Métis residential school survivor Robert Morasti and Jordan Burnoff, who's a resident of Isle La Crosse and a senior advisor to the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan. Before we go there, we first want to welcome MNC President Cassidy Caron to the podcast and ask her to share some thoughts around the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation.
3: Tansé and hello everyone. Thank you for joining us on our first episode of the Métis National Council's podcast, One Nation, Many Stories. This first episode is especially important as we take the time to reflect on this third National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. In my time as president of the Métis National Council, we have witnessed many steps forward in the pursuit of truth, reconciliation, healing, and justice for survivors, their families, and our communities. It was just last year that Pope Francis came to Canada and provided an apology for the role of the Catholic Church in their role of operating many residential schools in Canada. But there is still a lot of work to be done. Many Métis survivors still have yet to receive proper recognition or compensation for their experiences in these institutions. One such institution that you will hear about in today's podcast is the Isle of La Crosse Residential School. It is imperative that both the federal government and the provincial government of Saskatchewan alongside the church, come together to finally recognize these survivors and ensure that they can continue their healing paths. We invite you, the listener, to join us, the Métis Nation, on a pathway of truth, reconciliation, healing, and justice. I want to thank you for joining us today and throughout this journey. I hope that you can listen to the stories and learn more about the Métis Nation as we share our many stories with you.
0: Thank you, President Koran. And we want to let you know, if you require emotional support, there's a 24-hour residential school crisis line, which you can reach at 1-866-925-4419. Now, let's meet our guests. Robert Morasti is an Isla Lacrosse La Crosse residential school survivor. He's also a fixture in his community as an announcer on CILX Radio where he can be heard each weekday, bringing news and interviews to his Northern Saskatchewan community. He's had a long broadcasting career, including time spent as a journalist with CBC and APTN. Jordan Burnoff is also from Isle of She's a proud Cree and Métis, who serves as a senior advisor to the vice president and justice minister of the Métis Nation Saskatchewan. There, she has a special focus on recognition and compensation for the survivors of the Isle of La Crosse Residential School. Tante Jordan and Robert, it's so nice to see you, and welcome to the One Nation Many Stories podcast. It's been a while since we've been together, and I know a lot has been happening, but I was thinking, um, you know, for the listeners who are, are tuning in for the first time and maybe aren't aware of the Isle of story, Jordan, can you give us a little bit of a history of the community for everyone?
2: Okay, Tanse, Jordan Burnoff, Nesihgassen, Sagatua, and I think uh, maybe Robert can can pick up the pieces or fill in any gaps that I I miss. You know, I've I've actually been sharing a little bit about our community just as I'm doing work on climate and land issues, and the best way that I like to explain the community of Isla Cross—it's a historic Métis community—and actually how it came to be. And this is kind of where our, uh, our friend Robert here might, might have more insight. But people used to live on islands and kind of like on their trap lines and out on the land and less in the community. And Isla Cross actually exists just south of a continental divide. And so the river flows from the Hudson Bay to Isla Cross and then from Isla Cross up to the Arctic. And so it was kind of the perfect place for the fur trade and, you know, the original economy of Canada to to expand. Um, and it was also home to many Métis people and many First Nations people. There's a lot of uh, First Nations and Métis communities up in our community. And there's five rivers that flow into Isle of Cross. And the the Cree name for our community is Sagatoach, which means where the rivers open up. And so we have access to all of the surrounding communities around us. And I think, you know, some of the things that characterize our community are that we're kind of one big family. Everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, families have grown up together. Um, and yeah, it's it's very rooted in in language and the land. And that's kind of some of my my favorite parts about our community is that, we have a lot of language speakers. It kind of, like, ends at my generation. Um, there's not a lot of young people that speak the language, but definitely our our elders and, um, like, my parents in that generation are – you know, keeping that alive very well. And and it's in schools now. So it's like it kind of skipped a few generations where um, we learned it in school, but not necessarily carried on into high school and, and other things. But yeah, those are kind of the things that I think define Isle Cross.
0: Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for sharing. That was wonderful. Robert, would you uh, share a little bit about of your family's um, history and your perspective of the community for the listeners out there?
1: Yes, the, my genealogy goes back a few generations to my great-grandparents. Uh, my uh, great-grandfather was French, Girard, last name, and my great-grandmother was uh, Mispunas, both born in the 1800s. That's where my genealogy goes, goes up to as far as I know. And my, my grandmother, uh madeline larson was one of the first Métis, from from my great grandmother and my great grandfather father's uh child it was madeline larson was her name and uh, and then my my father was a uh, second generation and my mother was also a uh, second generation from the Mirasti side around Meadow, uh, Meadow Lake. So my mom was uh, Bill C-31. She uh, qualifies for Bill C-31, belonging to the Meadow Lake Flying Dust. Uh, but here in Nile Lacrosse, um, um, we've had a very interesting Métis community. Since, since I knew, since I knew when I was, when I was a child, I didn't know how to speak any other languages except uh, Michif and Cree. I didn't know any English as a child. About 1956, that's when I first entered the residential school. So my my recollection of what happened uh, at home was very little because of, of my upbringing in the, inside the residential school. When uh, when I, when I re- I recollect how how home was during the time that I can. All our languages were spoken in Cree and Michif. Everything was done in in Michif and we led a very traditional life. My father was a commercial fisher and a trapper. So uh, most of our food was uh, from the wildlife, the animals that he was able to get like the moose, the deer, the beaver, the ducks, the fish, bannock and libe, and uh, all those foods that we enjoy today. When when, when we uh, took it for granted way back then, today sometimes it's a little difficult to get. We, 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 we uh, still, our are, are, are elders today, are doing everything they can to maintain our traditions and our culture and our languages because it was lost. For example, many of our young people that went to the residential schools uh, didn't have the opportunity, enough time to learn their languages at home prior to going to the residential school because we were kids. I was just five years old when I entered the residential school at the age of five, at at the year of 1956. I was born in 1951. But I do remember my great-grandmother. She passed uh, when I was inside the residential school. I was probably not even ten years old yet. I used to run away, and where I ran to was my great-grandmother's because uh, she was... uh, My protector, she protected me right to the very end. She fought off people that came on that would come to uh, get me back from the residential school when I escaped. And uh, the last time that I did escape, I never found her. She had passed away, but I was never told that she did.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I, I mean we were we're segueing in right into talking about the residential school in across. and you know September 30th is coming up the National Day of Reconciliation which is a big day. I had the pleasure and the honor of being in your community last year and uh, you know had a chance to to meet many of the survivors and to you know have a be a part of a community uh, meal which was wonderful and, and hear some of the stories but um Jordan, maybe do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the history of the residential school and how, you know, it impacted the community and still impacts the community today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is kind of uh, a piece that I left out of the initial history was that, you know, and, and Robert alluded to this, that people lived out in the bush, people lived on islands, you know, they weren't necessarily in Isle of Cross. And many people that actually attended the school weren't even from Isle of Cross. They were from other communities, um, so, there really was a mix of Metis and First Nations students, and even non Indigenous students I've heard um, had attended the school as well. Um, the Isla Cross Residential School is about 158 years old, and so that's older than Canada, that's older than the province of Saskatchewan. I like talking about the residential school connection to climate and land because. I find that's often a conversation that's left out of the mix. And I think, you know, the displacement of, of people from their land and from their culture was, you know, it was really a big push for, I, I believe, for government and, and different groups to, to really take control and have ownership over land and therefore over natural resources. And, you know, you still see the impact of all of that in our communities today and yeah, I think going back to the Isla Cross residential school, um, I guess my role in all of this is I'm a community member. My my cookham um, attended that school um, when she was young, and all of all of um, her brothers and sisters attended as well. And you know, I think it impacted about what seven generations of people from the community um from Ila Cross from Boval English River First Nation from from Pachinac Buffalo Narrows where Turner Lake you know all of the communities I think about there's about 40 communities in northern Saskatchewan and I think about 18 or 16 communities were brought to the Ila Cross residential school and I guess in my in my daytime job, (laughs) I work with the Minister of Justice, who's also the Vice President of the Métis Nation, Saskatchewan. And um, she's kind of made it our mission to to work with the Isle of Cross survivors and make sure that, you know, justice is found for for what's been happening. And, um, you know, for years, there's been this little game that the governments, both governments, have been playing um, and it's, it's that, you know, who does the responsibility lie upon? And I guess, yeah, historically, as, as I mentioned um, the school is old, older, than the province it's older than the country. And, you know, the, the people that, that ran the schools were from the church and they were hired by the government to do so. Right. There's, there's letters that we have that, you know, We've been gathering different pieces of data, different stories, different records. And there's records from the church um, requesting uh, can we have, can we please have 1,000 more Indian kids so that we can civilize them and show them, you know, how to be a part of this economy. And they talk about how, you know, they have examples of, how this has worked, you know. Just it's just when I read it, I I cried because it's just so dehumanizing and it's just so disrespectful and it's you know it just it's like as if these children were like a commodity or you know something other than human and yeah, this is just how how the church and how these organizations or governments talked about um you know our ancestors and. You know, that's it's kind of still going on today, this disrespect and disregard for for human lives, for children's lives, um, because they were children when they went there. And so I think, you know, we're still battling with the history of the school. Like, I I don't think it is history. I think it's still here in the now because it's still unsettled. It's still unresolved. People are still living with the harms. And I think that's kind of how it trickles into life today is, you know, a lot of the younger generations have this misconception or this dissociation with their identity and their culture you know and i think you know you look at robert and the work that robert does on the radio and that's like that is to me and i don't know if i'm <laughs> if i'm speaking for you a little bit robert but i feel like what you do <laughs> I feel like what you do is very much in a big way like healing for our community, right? When I turn on the radio and I hear this guy talking Cree and talking about the earth, talking about, you know, the school and and everything that's happened, like it is a very um heavy conversation. It's a very heavy topic and like I can't imagine being a survivor and, you know, having to have these conversations constantly, but I think Robert does a, a really, a really good job of, of bringing healing into the community. And yeah, I think that's how it kind of manifests in this day and age with our youth is that um, a lot of people still uh, struggle with their identity. There's something to be said about that displacement from land and that displacement from language and culture that has left people feeling, you know, very disconnected from, from who they are.
1: That's a very wonderful description. Absolutely. It, it is so beautiful. And if I can just add a little bit to what she said. And not quite in that tone, but when the nuns sometimes would uh, describe us as little savages in their words. And uh, that's when they were trying to civilize us uh, in the kitchen. And, you know, we had, to, we had to be very orderly. We couldn't have our, we couldn't do anything. You know, we had to eat properly. We had to do all kinds of things. And this was very uh, detrimental to, to the way that I, that I tried to bring up my family. If my kids were to tell me how I brought them up, I would be ashamed of myself at how they would describe it. It was way too strict for my children. They didn't have a good a good childhood. I try to make it similar to without realizing it, you know, without knowing what I was doing that uh, what I was doing to my children. I would apologize to them today for the way that I treated them when when they were kids. It, it, while we were in the residential school, we ta- Jordan talked about where we were from. Uh, People were from as far away as Wollaston, the Hansons, the the Hansons that now some of them have passed on. I think, I do believe um, maybe one of the elderly Hanson women is still alive, but in a hospital. Terry Daniels, married to a Daniels, I think she's still alive. Emil passed away a few years back, but they were from Wollaston. Cree Lake, as far as Wollaston, as far as Cree Lake, and as far as uh, Dory Lake and Sled Lake. So most of the time we talk about from uh, Green Lake to La but they were beyond that. They were from as far away as Wollaston, Sled Lake, and, and Dory Lake. I remember them very well as a child when I was in there. You, you never forget these people because we, mm. We protected each other while we were in there as much as we can. Jeffrey Morn, Alan Morn, were like big brothers to me in the residential school and some of the other people that, that, I also, that I also knew while I was in there. It was not a very healthy place to be as a child, but there we were the uh, uh, many of us uh, that, I, that are my age today, the, the people that you see at the residential school gatherings, these were all the people that we lived together when we were kids. But I still remember the, the, the Petites. I don't know if they pronounce it "petit" or Petite, but uh, those, were, those people were very g- good friends of mine like Eric Petite and Richard Petite and Michael. Uh, the brothers they were we never had contact with uh, with the girls so uh, we didn't know the girls until the residential school had burnt down and when the new elementary school was built and was started to, to be used then we started to know the girls at that time but prior to that most of the people as described by Jordan lived across the lake Beaver River And uh, as well as uh, Wetas Bay, Sandy Point, around that area, they came. They they lived at the residential school as well, and uh, they went home once in a while. But I do remember these people quite clearly. And um, as she said, there was also some non-Indigenous people. The Derbyshire's were there as well. They were they were. A part of the group, they were no different from anybody except for their color, but we didn't. That didn't make any difference. We were all, uh, we all lived under one big roof, not a happy roof, but uh, one big roof. So, so there were people beyond La Losh that that came to um, the residential school here in Lacrosse. The very first day that I went in, I was met by a black robe. I still remember his name. We called him Big Bonnet. His name was Bonnet or something like that. They just didn't know how to pronounce it, so he, so he became a Big Bonnet to us.
2: And so was that. That was one of the priests that was there.
1: He was a, a lay brother. Okay,
2: and then there were the gray nuns.
1: Yes, the gray nuns who who as well. Who
2: ran the school.
1: Oh yes, I, I remember. Uh, I remember some of these uh, gray nuns very clearly, very mm-hmm. well. There was some that, there was one sister Laroche and sister Larmy, uh, sister Baudouin. and um, the older ladies like Eliza Obishan will remember the other ones.
2: Well, and and another piece of Métis history is uh, Louis Riel's sister was actually a nun and she worked at the school as well, Sarah Riel, and she's actually buried in our graveyard.
0: Yes, there's a little special place for her there, eh? How many Métis students uh, attended the residential school and were impacted by it? You know that's a
1: very good question, but as far as I know, there was at at least a hundred in 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 the boys' side, but and probably a, a, the same on the girls' side.
2: Yeah, and and Robert mentioned as well, like his his mom would be considered like a Bill C thirty one. Indian, as Canada calls calls us, um, and same with my family and like my Kukum, like our family, and I'm I'm First Nations and and I'm also Métis, um, but I'm First Nations because my my grandfather, my great grandmother was disenfranchised, and so that's kind of what would happen if people would deny their children to go to the schools or. Um, you know, if they wouldn't leave their their trap line or or the land that they were on, um, then they would lose their rights as an indigenous person. And so, I think like that answer has kind of changed over the years a little bit, Matt. So I think there were a lot of Métis students that had attended, and many of those people and those families, um, you know, carry both First Nation and and Métis ancestry. And there's actually, I I visited with um, a Setsuna, a grandmother from, from English River. And she was she was telling me about um, back in the day when they used to visit. And because she kind of just popped in with my friend's mom and they came and visited at uh, my parents' cabin. And it was such a nice day. And we were talking about how it's, it's so nice to just drop in and visit like that. And she said, you know what, people always used to do that. And it didn't matter if you were Cree or if you were Métis or if you were Dene. They would, you know, people would just visit each other and everybody was family. And then the government came in and created these imaginary lines and people had to stay within their communities, you know, and and then that's kind of where it it really stopped. And that kind of visiting and and storytelling and family time is kind of like falling apart a little bit. And I see that even with my own family, like things are definitely changing in terms of like, kinship and how we we gather sometimes. And I I attribute that to like, my cookum being gone, you know, there's not this like, one that pulls people in. Um, but anyway, I thought I thought that was like a really interesting story that she had told about you know just the imaginary borders that divided the Cree and the Dené and the and the Métis.
1: Yes, isn't that something? Eh? Yeah. And uh, the one thing that I will always recall is that uh, I I so admired the uh, people that lived across the lake when they were picked up by their parents and their in the winter, with their horses and wagons, some by dog teams, and uh, I just had to walk over here because our house was here, uh, just uh, three, four hundred yards from the school, and I, and I would spend hours and hours uh, looking out the window trying to get a glimpse of one of my family members, but I never did. So, so I always admired the people that came from across the lake because I thought they'll they lived in such a good place, a wonderful place.
0: One of the um, things, Jordan, you touched on, and Robert, I'm going to ask you a question about this, is, uh, I mean, the the residential school experience was dehumanizing, you know, at best. It was uh, an awful experience. And I think of the um, documentary that we all made together. And, Robert, you shared... Um, in that film, you talked about how you were assigned a number as a child and it really took away your identity. I think, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I think this is something that most listeners, maybe just learning about the Isle Cross story, they have no idea that this is what the kind of conditions as a, as a child you were exposed to.
1: Number 44 was my name. That's how I was addressed to. I didn't know my name much as Robert while I was in the residential school. Everything was numbered, your hat, your jacket, your mitts, your shoes, your clothing, your pants, your shirt. It was all number forty four. Our bed was number forty four. Where we sat was number forty four. In the kitchen where we sat, my number was on there, number forty four. Nobody ever sat there except myself. It was just it was all number forty four. And uh, everything that, that we we did in the residential school was by number. Everybody was a number. And uh, we all, we knew uh, what, we knew exactly what to do, just like little robots, eh? We were like little robots. We knew exactly where to go. We knew exactly what to do at a time. We were, it was all time, time-related. The time which we got up, Our sheets, our towels, our towels were numbered, our toothbrush was numbered, and our glass was numbered. Everything was numbered. Nobody else could use it except you. That started to change when there became some local involvement. Uh, Some of the lay brothers, like uh, uh, Brother Big Bonnet, had to leave or died or something. Um then they had to hire some local help uh to come in and work and things were a little bit better. We still had numbers though, but uh, they now called us by name and I sometimes had to be called twice because I didn't recognize my name, Robert. If they said forty four I quickly turned around. So it so we were very robotic and um and I never forget that. I, I never forget that even to this very day. Like I try to, I try to behave myself when I when I when I go somewhere, as I you know I, I try to mind my own business. Sometimes people will will be um will will laugh and will try to have fun, and sometimes that's a little bit hard to come by. I mean to get involved with that with that with being that way. To to be uh, relaxed and having fun to talk and to chat and uh, to visit each other. Sometimes I still forget how to do that because I was uh, what the way I was taught was so ingrained in me. It was hit into you, I guess I would say. How how would you describe that?
2: Beat uh, into you.
1: So that's how I remember that that portion. There was other. There was other. There was other things that that happened while we were in there besides being a number there was there was other there was all kinds of other things that affected us that impacted us while we were in there and we always had to line up we always had to line up when we went somewhere when we went to the kitchen everybody lined up we never went in a in a mad rush going anywhere we had to line up when we went to church it was all in a line we all st- stood on the sidewalk, walked on the sidewalk. We didn't walk on the grass or, or anywhere like that. We, we were all very neatly dressed. We had to be very neatly dressed. Nothing could be in a, your hair had to be very neatly well done. It, it could never be in a mess. All. It, it never, and people spent time, lots of time in front of the mirror. I, on the other hand, had really bushy hair. I had an afro, so I had a little bit more difficulty trying to comb my hair as Elvis especially.
2: <laughs> you had the Elvis flow?
1: Yeah, I had, a, I had that already. Right. <laughs> and back to the residential school in terms of uh, how... Uh, Uh, Our upbringing in there, it was very strict. Everything was um, very strict, time-related, and you had to do exactly as they said, or else you got whacked with something. It was whatever they had in their hands or the back or or their palm or the palm of their hand. That, That was very common. There was no other way but their way. No other way but their way. You couldn't cry. You couldn't cry either, or otherwise you got hit, you got the palm. If you cried, you got the palm. This one name that comes in, two names actually. There's there's a, a Henbury. he was one principal, and then there was a waltz, and he was another principal, and another teacher that I remember it was an Edwards But these people were very strict. Uh, So strict because um, one of the things that we didn't have was English speaking. We didn't have the language to learn. We didn't have that language at all. So it, it was very difficult for us to learn. So we went and marched to the principal almost on a daily basis. And when he walked into the principal's office... You had to put out your hand right away. As soon as we entered the principal's office, the principal knew in their way that we did something wrong, even though we didn't do anything wrong. It's just that we didn't know how to learn well with English, eh? Some of us that I wore one didn't know how to learn, didn't know how to speak English. And I remember some of the girls, oh my goodness, I remember some of the girls that that, uh, were tortured and there's so much. They had to do things like kneel on chalk, and in a corner, kneel on a chalk on each knee, and with a big with a big textbook on each hand, they had to stretch out their arms, and the teacher would put a textbook on each hand, and they would have to keep their arms straight across, and if it went down, they would get a ruler on their shoulder. And when they when the sh- when the ruler hit the shoulder or uh, the yardstick when the yardstick hit the shoulder they would have to bring back their arms up so that her, that they would be parallel to the shoulders and with the chalk they couldn't they couldn't kneel uh, I know some people today that still have knee problems because of the chalk they had to kneel on I don't know why that never happened to me I, I just don't know. I just don't know why. Maybe he didn't. I just don't remember. Maybe I just blocked it off. But I remember these guys. I'll never forget the girls that were tortured so, so much, that were in so much pain while being in there. You probably know Bernice DeRosher, Louise Kenny, Tanton. These were, these were some names that I'll never forget because they cried so much because of the pain that they endured while they were in there. Because we couldn't understand what their teacher was talking about. We didn't know English. And, um, and that was the, such a difficult, difficult era, like the grade one, two, three, and four. I don't remember
0: much about it except for the torture. Thank you for sharing that, Robert. Why hasn't uh, the Isle across? school been formally recognized by the provincial and federal government? And why haven't survivors been uh, compensated? It's been um, decades and decades of litigation, and uh, you're you're back and forth now with the government. Why has the Isle Lacrosse file not been attended to?
2: To my knowledge, and, and I've heard these stories from my grandparents as well um, and other survivors, but there was a, a lawyer who visited the community, what, 20, 30 years ago, and he actually sent um, university students from, from USASC, from the University of Saskatchewan, um, to go and visit the homes of survivors and get them to sign up for this class action lawsuit. And if, you know, there's there's a lot of communities, First Nations and, and Metis communities across across this country who have probably heard of Tony Merchant and, you know, have likely dealt with this similar similar treatment. But essentially survivors signed up thinking that, you know, they would find justice and, and see some like reconciliatory action or support for them this lawyer um he just never moved anything forward it kind of just sat at the very very beginning stages in the courts it was never actually put forward and so right now we're kind of at the stage that he was at what 20 years ago and we've managed to move that up to that stage within a matter of months and so it just goes to show like his his lack of um one just empathy as a human being for other people who have gone through this type of harm that, that Robert just, that Robert just shared. And, you know, their law firm had to hear stories. They, they heard testimonials from survivors. They, they went through, at all, you know they they had they had a lot of a lot of information and records, um, but yeah, it was just never pushed forward, and and I think it just took a little bit of um, some new eyes to kind of refresh this and and push it forward, and and use a little bit of um, I think political strategy and and um, like external communication strategy, which Matt, your your team at Inge- Indigenous Geographic has been a big part of helping. And I think, you know, the timing as well, like you see what's happened with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and the action Canada is trying to put towards the calls to action. Um, and even with that, like Isla Cross and a lot of, Communities that are municipalities, which are predominantly indigenous, um, kind of are affected in the same way that just based on this jurisdictional issue, um, we're kind of left out of things. And yeah, Isla Cross was not really included in a very big way in in the TRC. As yeah, just in terms of of what's happened in the courts. It just never was moved forward. And, and I think, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of movement and people have some hope that, you know, Saskatchewan government and the Canadian government are going to do the right thing. And sooner rather than later, like, you know, we just we just lost a, a member of the Isla Cross Residential School Committee, Lawrence Morin, just last week. Um you know, and Lawrence last summer, Lawrence was sitting right next to Minister Miller telling him to do something, like crying to him to do something. And we still one, we still haven't gotten our follow up meeting with Minister Miller, um, or the ministry. And so, you know, it it really is like it's people's lives and their experiences and essentially, it's it's just a continuation of colonization that is just continuing to exist in our communities. and um, there's just a lack of, I think, respect and decency to be able to look at a situation like this and and not go straight to politics or straight to, you know, the bottom line or or whatever it is that's that's the hold up on this, you know, and I, I think it exists in a place where, Let's just hypothetically speaking, the floodgates were to open of a municipality being recognized and and compensated. And I think that's the key thing here is compensation for survivors and communities. If that happens, then, you know, all of these other communities and rightfully so, you know, because somebody lands on the wrong side of the road or the right side of the road, whatever way you want to look at it. Like, for example, in English River. Pachinac the hamlet of Patchenac, is on one side of the road, which is under municipal jurisdiction, probably 100% indigenous or 99% indigenous people. And on the other side of the road is the First Nation, you know, and just because of this political jurisdictional thing that exists, and this is by design, created by governments by design, that. This issue and issues of similar nature can't be sorted, you know, and I I, so I don't know, I I think there is this ghost ship of meritocracy that exists that, you know, the government creates this, this, you know, this picture of barriers that they have to be able to help. And it's it's kind of interesting because they created it. You know, which it almost, it acts as a barrier for things to happen, but it safeguards them as well. And so I don't think this is an issue that the survivors need to solve. I think this is an issue that Canada and Saskatchewan need to solve. And they are doing it at the cost of human lives. They're continuing to do the wrong that they had done in the beginning when this all started.
0: Absolutely. I I recall being in that room with you and Lawrence uh, and our condolences. Um, and I remember him sitting next to Minister Miller, and we filmed it, actually. And uh, Minister Miller, if I'm remembering correctly, said stuff would be happening last September, yeah, you know, and nothing's happened that Nothing you know, survivors happened. survivors are dying, and they're waiting for justice. And um, it's unacceptable. And I think, you know the more, we share these stories um, just a we were actually um, our team was in Kingston, Ontario today delivering an Indigenous uh, education program. And we showed your documentary and people were moved and they were outraged at the lack of um, progress. And they can't believe this is happening in Canada. And mm-hmm. uh, this in in 2023, um, people were weeping. Um, and, and we shared that, you know, the survivors are passing and we mentioned that Lawrence had passed it cause he was in the film and people were distraught and it is disturbing. And one of the things that we suggested was, uh, you have a very prominent, uh, member of parliament, you know, in your community, call him, lobby him, tell him he needs, to, you know, uh, he needs mm-hmm. to get on this. Um, so I guess leading to my next question, what can listeners do to help? Uh, drive this forward and ensure that the survivors get the justice that they deserve. You, you are right. You know, and uh, when you talk
1: about uh, why we're not recognized, you know, it's deny, 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 deny. Everyone denies that Isla La Crosse was a residential school. Nobody wants to admit it, and uh, just for the life of me keep thinking about that. when I first rec, uh, got involved in, in uh, realizing that you know there was compensation being handed out to the Indian residential schools and I thought why not on the cross? why are we not included in this And uh, th- the story is that it was a Catholic Church that ran the residential school and not the governments and that's the denial there so the federal government is denying that they were involved but uh, instead the catholic church and the provincial government also denies that and as well the catholic church will not admit it will not will not will not admit it so nobody wants to admit that uh, isle of cross was a residential school they all want, they, they don't want to take, they don't want to accept that they did. They refuse to accept that they ran the residential school here in Isla Cross. Mm-hmm. So everybody's denying it.
2: It's, it's mind boggling because it's like you look at the the announcement that just happened with um, the Boval Residential School, which is just what, 45 <laughs> maybe I drive too fast, but an hour away from Isla Cross. And there were what eighty-three children found unmarked burials, I think most of which were children and there was about twelve infants. And you know, our survivors talk about the people that taught at the Isla Cross residential school. They also would move them to the Boval residential school. They would have the same staff. They would, you know, they would just move people around. And um, I won't share who who shared this, but, um, you know, if there was an instance where there was sexual harm on a child and, you know, the adults caught wind of this. And so they took the man who did that and just moved him to another school, you know, and, and then children were also moved from school to school. But it, it is, again, just this silly jurisdictional thing that that both governments just get to, you know, sit back and point the finger at one another. And, you know, when it comes time to, to take um, initiative and, you know, try to move forward with innovation and all of these brilliant things Canada and the province of Saskatchewan claim to do, you know, they really want to step up. They want to be known. They want people to you know, hear about the great things that that is this country and that is, you know, our provinces, but they don't want to acknowledge how they got it, right? And how they continue to get it, which is by, you know, raping and pillaging the land and people, essentially. And, you know, we still see it up north. Like, there's... Our survivors are playing, like, ridiculous amounts in, in energy bills and just to live, you know? And then... The extraction that's coming up in the north, like it's just unreal. And so, I think you know what what people can do is educate themselves about you know what's happening in Isle of Cross and what's what's been happening for a long time. Reach out to to the community and see how you can help. Like it is a very tight knit community, and if you talk to one person, that'll lead you to a whole other group of people. You know, Robert works at the at the radio station and is always sharing about all of the incredible things, the resilience of Isla Cross, despite this, you know, harmful history. Um, come and support what we're doing here on, on September 30th, there's going to be an event that the survivors are, are hosting on the national day of truth and reconciliation. And, you know, you're going to hear from some survivors. You're going to hear about the good and the bad. Um, but. It, our community really celebrates and honours one another, I think. And, you know, I think for different levels of government, one thing that I've really noticed lately um, and growing up, like I talked a little bit about my identity being First Nation and Métis, um, that there wasn't always, you know, this great unity. And that goes back to that that Setsuna, that Kukum's teaching, that these borders, these barriers were created, you know. But there's, like, the First Nation and Métis unity, especially on something like residential schools where, you know, there was a child. doesn't matter if the child was Dene or Cree or Métis or what. Um, That child was harmed, and that child was taken to a place where people were knowingly, you know, doing things that are going to impact you for the rest of your lives. And so I, I think um intergovernmentally i think first nations are are really doing a good job at at being there to support um metis survivors and communities and and i think metis the metis community is also doing the same um you know especially you look at what just happened with boval saskatchewan i think saskatchewan needs to um you know take their head out of the hole they've buried themselves in and, and pay attention to what people are saying. Um, these are people's lives. These are, you know, this is half of the province of Saskatchewan that's impacted. The Northern Administrative District, that imaginary northern line that Saskatchewan built, um, a lot of people within at NAD, which is half the province, if you look at a map of Canada, are impacted by this school. And Saskatchewan needs to pay attention to what's going on and respond. You know, we've written letters upon letters to the Saskatchewan government to even talk to survivors about this. And you know what we've gotten? Nothing. We've gotten decline, decline. Like Robert said, deny, deny, deny. Like, nobody wants to talk to survivors about this, they don't want to, you know, acknowledge the harm that they've caused, um, and that they're continuing to cause by not acknowledging this. And I think for Canada, there's been a lot of work done. Like, I, I can't say that they have not been um, trying to support this and and trying to maneuver this monster of, of jurisdiction and politics. Um I'm just kind of getting tired of that excuse now, you know, like having grown up with a lot of these people and now having worked with them for the past few years, um, there's just so much passion and so much hope, you know, and, and I'm just, I can't even imagine how they feel after like, you know, their entire lives trying to just be heard and just like falling upon deaf ears. And I think Canada needs to, you know, drop drop the excuse of we're waiting for Saskatchewan and just like move forward with something. Like something needs to happen. We're just losing survivors. Like it's it's absolutely just sad. Like I, I just passed through the community of Boval and had a little chat with the mayor. And he said, I can't even, I don't even feel like I can leave the community. It's just, there's just so much death And there's just so much heartache in the community right now. And the announcement with Boval, you know, like, like now is really the time there is, you know, we can't, can't keep waiting. Can't keep blaming other people. Something just needs to happen.
1: Our elders waited so long, especially those that have passed on. I remember them calling me, Robert, have you heard anything yet? And they were, the calls were very regular. And, uh, And I had to explain to them that it was in the lawyers' hands. And when I think about these people that have left us, that were so abused, so hurt while they were in there, one of the last people, I don't know if it's not respecting her that I say what I'm about to say, so I'm not going to say her name. But she called me because she trusted me not to say anything or to anybody, because she didn't want me to uh, to photograph her, to, to use my camera on her, but she said, oh, you can record me. Unfortunately, I lost the recording. But she told me that when she was at the at the girls' residence, that she had been raped. She forgot her shoes outside, where they were doing the fish. There had a fish table outside. And she told, asked the man, can I go get my shoes? I forgot them, so the nun said yes. And when she hit the door, as soon as she stepped out the door, a flashlight shone on her face, and she never seen the person that abducted her, that raped her, right there on top of the table where they, fished, where they did the fish. But she would call me right to the very end, did you hear anything yet? she you she was over 80 years old when she passed away she lived with that all of her life she said she never slept at night sometimes she couldn't forget it she just couldn't forget it and she was raped when she was only 12 years old when she was in a residential school here not across and yet these guys still deny what happened to us and we're here we're human, we're flesh and blood. And um, we tell our stories and they, and they don't believe us, they, they, or they refuse. Was it a conspiracy against our residential school here in Isle Cross not to do anything, to just totally deny the fact that we were there, that the thing existed, that big huge building existed and nothing happened to us? And even the teachers that taught in the new elementary school, never came forward to admit, look, this is what happened to these poor kids. I did this to those kids. And then even though the teachers that we thought to were good, that, we, that, we, that we, we wanted to be in their classroom because they were so nice, they never harmed us. I was hoping that sometimes along the way that these teachers would have come out and said, yes, I witnessed what happened to these poor kids. But they never did. They never yeah, my did.
2: mom uh, shared a story about one of the teachers, like even when she was in school, um, one of the young women, I think it was her first teaching job. And I don't know if it was that same principal, Robert, but this teacher had explained like she, the teachers would get called to the office and they would have to watch children get strapped or hit. And just, like, even if they didn't like it, they had to sit and watch and be a, like, participant, you know, in that harm to show them this was, this was, this was how it was. I don't know, like.
1: like yes. Uh, you know what my favorite time of school was, Jordan? Hmm. my favorite time of school was uh, when the practice teachers came in. Yeah. That was my favorite time of school, because they didn't have a clue what was going on. They were being the regular, real kind people that they were. Yeah. They were not influenced by anybody, because they were new to the community. They were new to what was going on in Nile Cross. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was going on. So I couldn't... Okay, did
2: you like children?
1: Oh, yes, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just they were absolutely wonderful people. And that's when my favorite time of the year was. Wait, I always waited for the practice teachers to come in.
0: So on the th- the thirtieth of September uh, is coming quickly. I can't believe how how fast time goes. But uh, so what is happening in the community on the thirtieth?
2: The folks at the Elders Lot are putting together. I've been in contact with Dorothy De Brule and she mentioned that they're going to have something similar to last year is what we did. Um, there were guest speakers who, you know, shared a bit about their experience. Um, last year and Matt, you can you can probably sit with me on this one, but there was a, a Kukkum, a grandmother that shared her story and she only spoke Cree but you could feel it you could and and I can I can understand very little and that's what I mean like we were probably feeling riding the same wave of emotions that you know very much probably didn't understand most of it but like you understood how this woman felt you know you could see her pain like as a child She spoke fully in Cree, and then there were moments when, you know, she was crying, and then there was moments when she would laugh and and tell jokes and use humor to to cope, you know, and it was just such a, it was a beautiful story. I understood it without understanding it, if that makes sense. so there's going to be speakers that are going to be up there again um and I think it's just a time to gather and recognize and you know celebrate the lives of of the people who have really created all of our communities up north who have created the families this beautiful ecosystem that is northern Saskatchewan and and yeah who have really sacrificed so much for us to all be here and and you know be be free and be able to learn without harm to be able to you know eat without fear and yeah so I think it's just going to be a time for family and food and and remembering our history and also looking forward to you know, the the beautiful future that we have ahead. I think that's the real the real charm and gift of our survivors and the elders in my communities is that, you know, regardless of all of this, and I experienced this from my musham he would always say, doesn't matter what happened, you're going to forgive, not for them, but for you, you know? And, and our survivors are all so just kind and happy all the time, you know? Just regardless of being like, what the heck is happening? What's going to happen next? What's going on? You know, and, and having to relive a lot of what's happened to them um, are still so positive, and will always find like humor and love as as they're coping. Um, so yeah, if you're around Isle of Cross, come and come and visit, and you'll get to experience some of that for yourself.
0: Wonderful, and you know what? I think um, we'll leave it there. I know I'm looking forward to seeing you both in person in Across on the thirtieth. Yeah, and thank you so much for spending an hour with us and sharing your stories. I think we're going to have to keep telling these stories until justice is served. I'm
1: glad I was able to talk a little bit about this. I
0: every time I talk about it, I
1: get rid of the, I get rid of a little bit of it, and uh, and I, I get to breathe easier a little a little bit more. Oh, that makes partner. me happy.
2: I, I'm always like afraid that asking you to continually have these conversations is hard for you. So
1: it, I'm it happy comes. It, it comes to me. It hits me like right now. It's just starting to hit me now. Mm-hmm. When I, when I think about the people that we lost, like Lawrence Moore, sat right across from me at the kitchen table where we ate. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Right he's there. with us now.
1: Yes. He's in peace.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of One Nation, Many Stories, brought to you by the Métis National Council. If you like this episode, please give us a review and rating where you listen. It will help others find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes, which will include an interview with President Cassidy Curran and episodes focusing on Métis arts, music, language, culture, and more. Merci Miigwetch, merci, and thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Matt LeMay.